Hey, everyone. It's good to be with you. Um, my name's Tony. I have the privilege and pleasure of being on pastoral staff here. Um, just as a random aside, uh, if you're new or not, uh, and you're curious about, so we did a church plant here, like, you know, five, almost five years ago. Um, and if you want some, like, behind-the-scenes gossip on what happened there, the Rossi family is visiting. They're over here. And uh, they, they actually relocated their whole life to come and move down here to do the church plant with us, which is no joke. And uh, so if you want some sort of insider gossip, that's definitely a good place to go. Uh, anyway, with that said, all right, so my goal this morning is twofold. One, uh, we're in 1 Samuel. We've been journeying through that for a bit. Uh, we're in chapters 13 to 15. Uh, simultaneously and secondly, my goal is Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of Lent. Now, Lent, I think, is important for a few reasons, which I'll explain in a bit. But my hope this morning to do is to sort of use chapters 13 to 15 in 1 Samuel to paint a picture of how we can lean into this season called Lent. Now, a bit of background, you know, maybe if you grew up in a Catholic home growing up, you gave up sweets maybe or didn't eat meat on a Friday. If you grew up in an evangelical home, you might be like, what is Lent? I have no idea what you're talking about, depending on where you are on that spectrum. And I imagine all of us are in this room. Uh, I wanted to set a little bit of a stage. Uh, one, Lent comes from the Old English, uh, lengthen, which simply means spring. Uh, it's the 40 days leading up to Easter, and it's the 40 days leading up to that. Now, if you've ever had a big event in your life, maybe you got married, maybe you had children, maybe you had a big recital or sports game you were preparing for, rarely do you just show up, right? Usually you do pre-work so that when you show up to that big football game or basketball game or your marriage, your heart is prepared. Otherwise, it doesn't tend to go well, right? Lent functions similarly. Lent is 40 days to prepare our heart to encounter Jesus on Good Friday when he suffers, is tortured, and dies on your behalf and on mine. It's to prepare our heart for Easter when Jesus is raised from the dead and we realize there is hope in a sin, sinful, and broken world, yes, even for you and me in this broken world we live in. So we take this season of the year, and the church has done this since the very beginning in the 200s. Arrhenius is writing about this. In Nicaea, one of the first major church councils in 325, Lent is a normal practice of the church. So what we want to do is become the kind of people that are shaped by the Scriptures, but also take seriously that our hearts wander throughout the year. And sometimes it's helpful to take 40 days and say, all right, where am I with this thing called sin? Right? Paul describes in the New Testament how sin like reigns over us. It's not just a behavior we do, it's a force. And we want to sort of consider how that force could be at work in our lives as we lean into why does Jesus die on a cross? Why is Jesus tortured and exiled outside the city and then raised from the dead to deal with sin? What's the big deal? So what we're going to do is we're going to lean into 1 Samuel. Now, this is three chapters. I cannot do three chapters very easily in one little sermon. You know, if we wanted to stay till three or four, I could like go line by line. I can't. Let's do it. <laughs> I'll have Aaron fill in at the end. Yeah. Um, 
Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight three key moments in chapters 13, 14, and 15, and I think they will provide us a window into what sin does and what it looks like. Okay? Moment one. Seven days? Background. Once again, uh, the Israel is sort of approaching a battle with the Philistines. The battle's brewing. The Philistines, the text says, are like sand on the seashore in multitude. Israel's terrified of this army. The people literally are hiding themselves in caves, in holes, in rocks, and even finding cisterns to hide in. They're terrified. Saul, who is anointed prince or king, he's worried, he's unsure what to do. The people around him are, the text says, trembling in verse 7. This is where it gets interesting. The text says, verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. The people, his army, are they're leaving. They're afraid. Saul's starting to panic a little bit. What should he do? What is the wise, faithful course of action? Earlier in chapter 10, Samuel had told him this, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Hey, Saul, I'll be back in a week. Chill. I'll be there. But simultaneously, In this same conversation, in chapter 10, he also told Saul, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. There's a little ambiguity here. So what am I supposed to do, Samuel? Am I supposed to wait seven days, or am I supposed to do what I should do according to what I think is best? He decides that he's going to offer this sacrifice, which should be Samuel's role, right, as the priest. He offers a burnt offering and a peace offering, and right after he's done, Samuel shows up, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? I want you to notice Saul's reply. He says this, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, great name, and I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Saul's afraid. His troops are leaving. The Philistine army is approaching. He's panicking. Oh, no. Where is Samuel? I need to do this. The text says that he forced himself. He has this like internal division within himself, and he forces himself to do the sacrifice because he needs the favor of the Lord, which should echo us back to 1 Samuel 4 when they bring the ark in, and they think, if only I have the ark with me, I'll win every battle. So he offers the sacrifice to get the favor of the Lord. He's afraid. Troops leaving, Philistines there. Maybe God won't show up unless I offer this sacrifice. Saul's afraid. Samuel, though, He doesn't say, dude, I'm sorry, you're afraid, that must have been tough. He says this, you are foolish for your lack of trust. And he tells Saul, you're not going to have a dynasty, and God now is going to find a king after his own heart. Chapter 13, verse 14. And what Samuel is saying is, hey man, God wants a king who will choose to do what God says, who cares more about obedience 
than sacrifice. By listening to his voice more than burnt offerings, God wants a king who's going to trust him. And really, we need to understand this story in light of Genesis 1 through 3. You might not originally see this, but it's actually pretty important through this whole narrative, and we'll keep going back to it. Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1, remember, God creates all things good. On the sixth day, he appoints man and woman in his image, right? They're meant to be his image bearers, his representatives of his kingdom, like kings and queens on earth. He says, you're going to rule over all these things. That in Genesis 2 and 3 in Eden, there's two trees in the garden, right, in the center. One, the tree of life. The other, the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra, or good and evil. Right? You have this idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad represents this choice of whether humans are going to define good and evil for themselves, do what is right in their own eyes, or whether they will trust God for wisdom, for provision, as they rule as his image bearers over creation. Back to 1 Samuel 13. You have a king, right? You have a choice. Will this king, will he, will he live into, right, the image-bearing hopes of God in Genesis 1? He has a choice of who to trust for wisdom. What does he do? Well, Samuel says that he is foolish. He has not chosen God's wisdom. Right, and if you riff back to Genesis 3, it's important to note that wisdom is not primarily defined, or sin in this point is not primarily defined as like heinous acts of like murder and violence, but it's actually seeking wisdom apart from God. Put in one word, foolishness. Right, even though it's interesting, right, even though Saul is terrified of this Philistine attack, no big battle ensues. All that fear, all that worry, the panic, the premature sacrifice, foolishness. For what? Story number two. An ephod, the ark, vows, and lots. Yeah, I know. Lots of words. Background, right? Some time passes. Jonathan, Saul's son, he gets this idea. I'm going to go attack a Philistine garrison. There's an opportunity. It's a super successful attack. But Saul's kind of hesitant to join the battle. The text says the first thing he does, rather than joining the battle, is he calls a priest with an ephod. And it's one of those textual details that you can just skip over, but it's kind of like in modern parlance, the president, oh yeah, I'm going to call the religious-looking guy with robes and a collar carrying a cross. It's sort of like, oh, that's an interesting detail. Is he calling him because he's wearing an ephod or because he's curious about what God has to say? We don't know. Point number two, though. Clue number two. He calls for the Ark of the Covenant. Back to 1 Samuel 4, right? The Ark of the Covenant meant guaranteed victory. If only we had the Ark with us, we will win every battle. So why is Saul calling for the Ark of the Covenant right before a battle? We don't know exactly. We have two clues at this point. We have an ephod and we have an ark. What we do know is the tumult in the Philistine camp becomes so obvious that Saul ends up attacking. But before the attack, 
he makes this vow that no one can eat in his whole army until, I quote, verse 24, I am avenged of my enemies. Notice kind of the self-centered nature of this vow. It isn't about bringing God honor. Right? It isn't about protecting God's people. It's all about Saul and his revenge. And clearly, it's not very helpful. Like, fighting in a battle, I have not done it, but I have to imagine it is exhausting. Right? The army gets exhausted, and you start to see the unintended consequence of this rash and self-centered vow. Right after this, Jonathan, his son, in extreme hunger and unaware of the vow, eats honey on the battlefield. Then the troops, in their extreme hunger, end up taking spoils of war and eating meat with blood still in it, which is actually against the Mosaic law. Saul has this rash vow. You have all these unintended consequences. He realizes, okay, they eat some meat with blood in it. Okay, okay, then he says, right, verse 34, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. Good job, Saul. Like, you tried to address it, but notice what he doesn't say. Oh, man, I, I made a mistake. Oh, yeah, my rash vow created all of these issues. I put you guys in this position. My bad, I was the cause of all this. No, nothing there. And as the story picks up again, the text makes clear that Saul is focused on finishing the Philistines off, right? He wants to keep attacking until he is personally avenged. But there's this man of God in the camp, and the guy says, maybe you should ask God about it. Maybe? An idea? And for the first time in the story, Saul seems to try and talk with God. Verse 37, Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Right? Rather than acting brashly, rather than doing simply what was right in his own eyes, he asked God, well done, Saul. Awesome. He then waits 24 hours, doesn't hear anything, and he starts now turning to lot casting to figure out what is wrong. And you start getting the feeling, if you slow down with this story, that Saul has this kind of like religious grab bag he's pulling from. You have an ephod, you have an ark, now you have lot casting, right? And before that, even burnt offering. One wonders, wonder, one wonders whether Saul even has a relationship with God, or whether he's just doing religious stuff. And when the lots are cast, the lot, falls on his, the lot falls on his son, Jonathan. What's interesting here, though, is that Jonathan is probably the least guilty of anyone at this point. Right? Saul disobeyed Samuel, and he did the burnt offering without waiting. The army ate meat with blood in it. All Jonathan did was eat honey without knowing that his dad made a rash vow. And yet... In this moment, Saul is ready to kill his son rather than acknowledge his self-centered and rash oath which set up this entire debacle. 
And if it wasn't for the people standing up to Saul saying, hey, you cannot do this to your son, Jonathan likely would have died at his father's hand. Which now brings us to moment three. Listen. So we enter chapter 15, you get this sense that the author's trying to say, okay, maybe we caught Saul on a bad day. Maybe there's some miscommunication. Let's be really clear now so that you know exactly what you're supposed to do and not. 15.1, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Pretty clear. All right, Saul, you're king. Awesome. Listen to what God says to you. This is what it means to be king. Listen and obey. Got it? On the same page? All right, this is what you need to do. Attack Amalek. Don't take anything for yourself and your army. Just do what God says. So Saul gathers an army of over 200,000 soldiers. He attacks the Amalekites. He captures the king. It's a victory. Hurrah, hurrah. Exciting news. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Saul keeps all the good stuff. He decides what is tov. Who is the one who decides what is good? God. But Saul, he decides what is good, what is worth saving, and what is not. Right? Back to Genesis 1. Six times in Genesis 1, God is the one who decides it is good. Right? And then you have the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra, good and bad. Right? Learn from me, God says, on walks in the afternoon in the garden. Don't take the shortcut to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where you get to decide what is tov and ra. Right? What does the serpent say? Eat from the tree and you will be like God. What does Saul do? Verse 12 says that he built a monument to himself. Not good. Not tov. Raw. And yet, with all this in mind, right, Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says, drumroll, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Verse 13. Wait, what? I mean, straight up, like lying straight to his face, not to mention the fact that Samuel in the text is told us, like, can literally hear the animals in the background. Like, what's going on here? Samuel asked Saul, you know, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Verse 19. Again, Saul, unable to take responsibility, says this. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king back, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction, but the people. The people took the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. I have four times, but the people, not me, 
They didn't listen. Remember what happens in Genesis 3, the first thing that happens after the fall, right? Shame, hide, blame. One of the first consequences of sin, right, is that they blame each other. Samuel says, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and adultery, idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God just wants Saul to obey. But Saul seems more focused on sacrifice and other religious stuff. Right, and it's only here when Saul is rejected as king, that he had finally admits any responsibility or sin in the entire process. Verse 24, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Right? Saul admits for the first time in this text that he's afraid. He admits that he's afraid of the people and that he's listening to their voice versus God's. I did it. My bad. But even here, as the text unfolds, the author suggests that maybe Saul's repentance is more words than actually true repentance. As the text unfolds, Samuel in verse 35 mourns for Saul. Verse 35, God feels regret. Saul? Doesn't seem like he feels anything. He doesn't seem to have any sorrow for his actions. Saul potentially remains unrepentant actually to the end. Now the question is, in our everyday life, as we enter this season called Lent, what does this text have to say to us? Right, what does this text of Saul's downfall have to say? And I, I think a few things. First, I think this story gives us windows into what sin is like and how we can pay attention to it as we enter Lent. Because what we're trying to do is prepare ourselves for why does Jesus die on a cross? Right? What is he trying to address the ravages of sin in the world. What is he resurrected towards? Right? Well, it gives us hope that we do not have to stay stuck in these patterns of sin that reign over us. It gives us a sense of hope. And so what we're doing is we're paying attention to sin in Lent so that when we hit Good Friday and Easter, we're a people that can say, yes, God, you died for me. You died for the brokenness and sinfulness of this world. And our hope is in you. The thing is, though, often we carry these assumptions about Lent, primarily that it's about giving things up. And I think there's some truth to that. But I want to reframe. I think Lent is about stop, stopping doing certain things so that we can start doing other things. It's not just about creating an absence 
Like somehow if we give up sugar, we're somehow more righteous. What do we need to stop doing so that we can start doing things that bring us closer to God, to one another, and even reconcile us within ourselves? There's three things I want to hit on. First is the three consequences that I want to talk about today that sin, how it affects us. And I'm going to go back to Genesis 3 and I'm going to go back to 1 Samuel. Um, The first thing I want to highlight is that sin divides us relationally from God. When we read this in uh, 1 Samuel, we see, right, by the end of chapter 15, Saul is just worshiping himself. He builds a monument to himself. He's no longer a humble creature worshiping God, right? He's not just that guy finding lost donkeys, right, in chapter 9. He's now building an altar to himself. He's trying to make himself into a god, and this is what sin does. Adam and Eve seek wisdom apart from God, right? The serpent says, you will be like God. And that's what they try to be. And immediately, right, things fall apart, Genesis 3.8. Then the man and, the, and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Previously, Adam and Eve had lived in the garden in harmony with God, naked and unashamed. Now, having sinned, their first impulse upon hearing God and His voice is to what? Hide. This is humanity's basic and most elemental estrangement. Because of sin, we hide from God. In an open, trusting, shame-free, fear-free relationship is broken. Let me see this with Saul. Saul doesn't really seem to trust God. Sure, he turns to all kinds of religious stuff. But God? Not really. And I guess as we enter Lent, I think we're invited to explore what does it look like for you and me to run from the voice of God, to trust in our own wisdom rather than His, to do what is right in our own eyes rather than allow God to define what is tov for us and the path we are invited to walk. I guess as you enter Lent, as we enter Lent, I would invite you to consider what might it look like for you as you prepare for Good Friday and Easter to intentionally create space to draw near to God, to come out from hiding behind the tree and walk towards Him. If I was going to get really practical, I would say some of us are tempted to trust in money. And the Lenten practice then is to say, you know what, I'm going to learn how to give. So if you've never given money to God's work in the world, I would say, I don't care what you start with, a quarter, just start. That's the work of Lent. Stop doing greed, start doing generosity. Or maybe it's time. You're driven by anxiety and fear of trying to cram everything into your life. So what you do is you stop doing rushed and anxious, and you start doing some Sabbath practice to slow down and say, all right, God, 
here I am. Or maybe you're tempted to worship political figures in this time and put your hope into politics. And so what you do is you stop listening to every article, every social media post, everything online. You just fast from any political reading or listening. And you take all that time you did that and all you do now is intercede and pray for our nation and our world. Or maybe you're tempted to worship your own image and you spend all this time on social media crafting how people will see you. And so you give up all social media for the season of Lent and you take all the time that you spent on social media and you read the scriptures. God, you are the one who defines who I am, not all these likes. Or maybe you're tempted to flee behind the tree because you don't want to face the reality of your life. You're tempted to lean into distraction. So what you do in Lent is you stop going to your phone first thing in the morning. You stop going to Netflix first thing at night and you read a psalm or you read a chapter from the Gospels before you do that, right? You stop doing and start doing so that you come from behind the tree and move towards God in relationship. That is what we do during Lent. Sin divides us from God. We stop doing things to start doing things to become aware of that essential division that props up in our life. Another fruit of sin is estrangement we have between one another. When we see this with Saul, Right? He blames the soldiers for taking all the stuff. What is their problem? Right? Four times. I did, I did, I did, I did, but them. He's willing to even kill his own son rather than take responsibility. Genesis 3.12, right? When God asks Adam, what happened? Rather than take responsibility, what does he do? He blames. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. And I ate. A lot on the Eve's responsibility, two words on his. I ate. Right? One of the first fruits of sin is blame. She did it. He did it. Did you see what they did to me? Sin undermines human relationships. And we see this. If you read any page of the Bible, you see it. And the truth is, we see it in our own lives. We see it between coworkers, family members, church brothers, and sisters. And as we lean into Lent, I think we need to ask ourselves, how does sin lead to division in your relationships? If you were to identify one relationship in your life where there is division and you would bring it into the presence of God, what do you think would happen? I think so many of us, if we look at the divisions in our life, we would see we are trapped in cycles of blame. And I think the path of Lent is to stop ruminating on your anger and your bitterness 
and your resentment and to start the process of coming towards Jesus with a posture of self-examination and confession. Is there one relationship in your life that you feel like, man, I should probably talk with Jesus about this. What does it look like for you to leave that cycle of blame and move towards self-examination, move towards confession in the presence of a loving God who really doesn't want you to stay trapped in that cycle of resentment and bitterness? That's a really terrible place to live. Third, sin also leads to internal division. In Saul, we see this how he always seems to have like one foot in and one foot out. You notice this, right? If the last week we talked about how he's anointed by Samuel and then he hides in the baggage. Right? He's afraid of the Philistines. He's not sure what to do with the burnt offering. And the text says, fascinating, right? Verse 12, he forced himself to do the offering. It was like he had this internal debate or internal war within himself. And he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. In Genesis 3, we see the same internal division. In Genesis 2, right, man and women are naked and without shame the first thing that happens after they sin, they experience shame, which is an internal sense that I am not okay. Something is wrong with me. That's the first action they take. They cover themselves with fig leaves. They cover their shame from one another. And then immediately they hear God approaching, they experience fear, and now they hide from God. Both this shame and fear, this covering and hiding, suggests that humans, as a result of sin, no longer feel at home within themselves. And you see this in the New Testament too, Romans 7, Paul writes, "'For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate now if I do what I do not want. I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The Apostle James wrote that conflicts and disputes that he saw in his day and in the church, he said, arose from cravings that are at war within you. This is James 4, 1 through 2. Paul sees this sense of sin is indwelling and there's like this battleground internally. James says that there's war and conflict among you because there's a battle within you. Internal division, internal war. This begins in Genesis 3 and you can see it in Saul's life. And the truth is, every one of us has a front row seat to this narrative and this dynamic played out within our minds and in our hearts. And I guess my question to you today is, do you know where those battle lines are within your mind and your heart and your soul? My experience is all of us have probably like two or three 
real places of tension and conflict where discipleship to Jesus is waged. There's like a war going on. Do you know where those are in you? Sometimes I find that if you've been in the Christian life for long enough, sometimes we just accept that we're always, we're never going to win those battles, so we give up. Or some of us, we just think, oh, it's all about external behavior. But the point is, external behavior comes from the overflow of the heart, right? What does Jesus say in Mark, right? Overflow of the heart is what leads to sin. And what we're trying to pay attention is the battle, battle lines that are within the human person that lead to all these sinful behaviors outside. Do you know where those two or three are within you? Where that western front is within you? I think there's like a fourfold process here. First is I think we need to identify. Where are they? This is maybe paying attention to this week or this Lent. Where are those primary battles in you? Right? I've talked about these earlier, right? This could be around money or politics. I think there's a thousand different things where these things play out. Do you know where they are? Identify them. Second is to understand them. What really is motivating this for you? And often it is super elemental. And it often goes back to Genesis 3. Fear and shame. Like, I, I don't know what percentage, but a massive percentage of these battles are really around fear and shame and whether we will trust God with our identity and our life. Identify, understand, what motivates you here? What, what, what really tempts you? Three, and I think we skip this step way too often, we need to include. Include other people so they know where those battle lines are within us. Include God. God, help me. And the fourth step, I think, is to resist. Identify, understand, include, resist. Often what we do is we just go straight to resist, and we skip literally those three other steps, and we fail again and again and again and again, and we wonder, why do I suck at this? Well, one, we haven't really identified where the battle lines are, so we're not prepared. Two, we don't understand them. Three, we haven't involved other people or God to walk with us and hold us up so that we can continue resisting. We often think of it as like heroic attempts versus sustained resistance. And what we need in the church is sustained resistance to the work of sin, right? If you go back to Genesis 4, right? Cain and Abel, God says to Cain, sin is literally crouching at the door, the threshold, the front, the battle line. Will you resist it? Lent is the season when we bring our divisions with God, our divisions with others, and the divisions within ourselves into the light of God's presence. And we ask for God's mercy. Right? This is the work of Lent. This is the invitation of the Scriptures. I want to invite the worship team up. Um, and as we sort of think about these things and ponder them and pray about them, I want to 
end with a, um, a quote. This is a quote from a book called Gentle and Lowly. Because and, I think one of the things we do in Lent and when we think about sin is we focus on our failure. And we're sometimes afraid that God is just going to smash us. So then we're, we're like, I don't know if I want to. I want to hide behind the tree. You know? We like hug that bad boy for dear life and we're not going to be dragged away from it. This is who Jesus is. This is the quote. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. Jesus loves us so much. Jesus dies a criminal's death so that you do not have to be trapped in these patterns of division and sin and brokenness. And he welcomes us, the broken and the wounded and sinners, into his arms to break the power of sin in our lives so that we can experience life, his life in his kingdom shaped in his image. Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, just ask God that you would convict us. God, convict us of our sin. God, reveal to us the ways that we are divided from you. The ways like Saul that we use religious behavior as a way to shield from the encounter with your presence. God, help us to see. God, we want to see you. We want to, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God, let us see you. Make our hearts pure before you. And God, you want to form us into a people, a church that are unified under you and in your kingdom. God, reveal to the ways that we blame shift. God, reveal us, our hearts to us, the ways that we have settled for sinful behavior and posture with friends and family and co-workers. God, give us the face, the image of one person in our life, God, that you want us to consider and self-examine. God, give us an image of that person right now by your spirit, one name, one person, that we can work on this life. to identify the battle lines within our soul. Our sin seeks to reign over us, to dominate and devour us. God, may we identify. Identify those places, those battle lines, those fronts. 
God, give us wisdom to understand them. God, give us bravery to include people despite our shame and our fear to include people and you, Jesus. That we might be able to sustain resistance to sin that dwells within us. God, in this space, we know it is not by human effort that we are transformed into image bearers, that we know it is not by human effort that we get this right, but it is because of you, Jesus. It is because of your love for us. That's what we're going to do now, God. We're just going to stand here and we're going to sing of your love for us, that none of us are too far away, none of us are too broken. We are actually all in the same camp in desperate need of you. Church, let's stand and worship the God who rescues us.